one of the things that is really sweet about being in a relationship for a long time is that you, um, the way you love people changes. You know, you remember that first time you met your girlfriend or boyfriend that's now your spouse, and it's that tingles up your spine the first time you touched her hand. And, you know, did one of those. <coughs> and one of the things that I think is just neat, something to celebrate, um, not today, later in the month, uh, middle of June, Marcy and I will celebrate 20 years of being married together. And uh, it's different than it is when it first starts out, you know? I mean, it's not any less passionate, but it's passionate in different ways. It's a steady flame. It's not a flickering flame. And uh, here's the thing that is really amazing to me is she knows me a lot better than she did when she first met me, and she loves me in spite of myself. And the same for her. There's just less problems for my love towards her than there are for her to me. Um, that's just kind of the way that it works. There's more to forgive uh, for her. You know, she has more to forgive. But it's an amazing thing that in our relationships with our kids, you know, we, we love our kids in spite of themselves sometimes, you know, um, and we love our spouses in spite of ourselves, and, and that love grows deeper and stronger, and it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to behold. But here's the challenge. As we'll see from God's Word this morning, sometimes the, the more we get to know God, the more we despise Him. And sometimes the people who know God the longest like Him the least. Boy, that's a challenging word, isn't it? Aren't we supposed to love the Lord more the longer we walk with Him and get to know Him? Aren't we supposed to just be thrilled at His grace and His majesty and His sovereign forgiveness that He offers us in Christ? Yes! But instead of loving, he, we don't have to love Him in spite of Himself like He does us. The more we get to know him, the more we don't like things that make him who he is. And so this morning, we'll be in Matthew chapter 20, uh, looking at a parable in verses 1 through 16. Um, the scriptures will be on the screen behind you. I'll be reading from the Holman Christian Standard translation. But if you want to use the Pew Bible in front of you, we'll be on page 697 in that um, Pew Bible there. Now, <clears throat> something that's very important for us to understand is the context. And so what comes before Matthew chapter 20? God bless you. Matthew chapter 19. And so if you look back perhaps a page to Matthew chapter 19, Jesus has just taught on the uh, importance of possessions and the kingdom. And he said that it's very difficult for a rich, it's as difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven as it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. When, of course, when the disciples hear this, they wonder who in the world can be saved. And Jesus says, uh, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. To which Peter, in verse 27, says, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. What will there be for us? What do we get for following you? And as we turn the page to Matthew chapter 20, we see that this is the beginning of a very long answer of what discipleship is really about. And in this passage, Jesus teaches us about something that I don't know that we would put it in these exact same words, the promise and the peril of Christian work. Christian work serving the Lord can be very deadly to your soul, depending on what your attitude is. 
And so I want us to take a peek at this story. And it begins in chapter 20, verse 1, with a landowner going to the city square to hire workers. Look, look with me at verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the workers on one denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out at about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. To those men, he said, you also go to my vineyard and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. About noon, and again at three, he went out again and did the same thing. Then about five, he went and found others standing around and said to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they said to him. You also go to my vineyard, he told them. They were tempted to ask the question, why in the world did the landowner keep hiring all these folks? Was it a critical lack of foresight? Did he just underestimate how many workers it was going to take to bring in the harvest? Was it that he just simply didn't hire enough the first time because there weren't enough people there? Was it that the first crew of workers that he hired, did they do such poor work that he needed others to hire to get the job done for the day? These are all kind of interesting, trivial questions to figure out what's happening. But the truth is they're completely unimportant to the story. Because the parable here is not about agriculture or about uh, human resources and managing people. It's about God. Because he says that the kingdom of heaven is like this. And so as we'll see in this story, God is the landowner. The workers are Christians who are working in his world, in his vineyard. And the payment is the gift of salvation that God gives. And as we begin to understand this story and what it is intended to teach about God's great grace, we see several things about God that are just very important for us to note uh, kind of in rapid fashion as we walk through this. Number one, we see that God has sovereign initiative in seeking and in saving. God has sovereign initiative in seeking and in saving. If the landowner didn't happen to come by the city square, the fountain where all these guys were maybe hanging out, how would they have found work? They wouldn't have. Unless the landowner was sovereign in his seeking, they would not have had employment. They would not have been, they would not have been working in God's vineyard. But God's also sovereign in establishing the terms. I think this is really interesting. The very first group that he talks to, there's actually, it's, it's mentioned what the agreement is. They're going to work for a denarius, which is a common... Uh, day's wage. The rest of the groups that he hires at 9, at 12, at 3, and at 5, what's the agreement? Put it right there. I'll pay you whatever's right. You know, spit in a handshake. I'll pay you whatever is right. Evidently, this landowner had such a magnanimous personality and reputation that people were going, that people were willing to work for him knowing that he would do what is right. Now listen, you may be in a position of employment where you hire folks. Um, you're not guaranteed that you're going you're gonna to hire people who will do what is right, let alone them have a guarantee that you're going to do what is right. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. <coughs> and I think if I'm just being honest, I don't know that I want to go to work for somebody on a handshake. I think I want a contract, and I want a job description, and I want to know what I'm going to get paid. And, but there's not really a negotiation. There's kind of, hey, come work for me. You're looking for a job. And the rest of you, I'll give this first group of denarius. The rest of you, 
we'll kind of figure out what it is. And I think the common way that we think through this, if he's going to do what is right, it's going to be some prorated version of a fraction of a denarius. You know, that makes sense. I mean, that's just what he's going to do because he's a good guy and he's going to do what is right. We see here very clearly that anything that happens for these workers is the responsibility of God's sovereign initiative in both seeking them and putting them to work, saving them and giving them the payment uh, that is commensurate with that task. Number two, we see that God has a great desire for workers. He has a great desire for workers. The people who are hired are called workers. And the thing that we see in this parable is that these workers are Christians. Friends, let me just say this with, uh, without maybe a whole lot of comment, that this is God's purpose for all people. If you think that God gives out the spiritual gift of sitting in a pew, you are sadly mistaken. God's desire is for all Christians to work for Him. He wants people working in His harvest almost more than He wants anything else. And so it's not uncommon because we have done something very tragic. We have turned Christianity into churchianity. And now it is quite possible for someone to slip into a service, sit on the back row, listen to whatever goes on, but not build intentional relationships, not serve, not be engaged personally in Bible study. And, 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 and he can walk out the door when the service is over, and the epithet on this man's tombstone when he dies is that he was a good Christian man. We have watered down Christianity to making it about attending, but not working. And God's desire is for people that he calls to be workers, and we please him when we do this. And when we pray for him to raise up more workers, that the work becomes so dear to us, not because we're the landowner, but because we want to please the landowner. We know that there's more work than we can do ourselves. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38, Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And isn't that what this parable is exactly about? That God is hiring workers. He has a desire for workers. So, friend, here's the question for you. Are you working or are you watching? Are you a worker, a laborer, or a supervisor? You know, supervisors, the joke is that they do. They don't do anything. They just watch. It's the workers that do the work. Here's the question. Are you working or are you watching? It's funny because you would think that we were, when we offer service opportunities, sometimes in the church, you would actually think that we're giving out free samples of the bubonic plague because they will remove their name from that list Man, no one will read an announcement until you have to sign up for leadership. And then they read that announcement and they get their name removed from that list as quickly as they can. They may not ever sign up for anything else, but they'll sure volunteer to not serve. God has a desire for workers. So here's the question. Why is this so important to God? Why is workers, having a desire for workers so important? It leads to our third point. The work is so huge that God is continually calling men, women, boys and girls, workers. God is continually calling workers to himself. At this moment, God is in the process here, there, everywhere, around the world of calling men to himself. And I love this about the parable. There are so many things that I think that we can see here 
that are precious. But here's, here's the thing that I think I love the most. This parable is teaching that God is willing to redeem all who are willing. God is willing to give a job to whoever. I'm not willing to give a job to whoever. But God is willing to hire anyone who is willing. In John 6, 37, Jesus says this, Everyone that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Parents, let me tell you, this is a great promise for you. What this is saying is, you can't mess your kids up enough to make them not come to Jesus. If they truly belong to the Lord, they will, these are Jesus' words, not mine, everyone that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one that comes to me I will never cast out. Here's the great truth of the gospel. No one who truly wants God will be without him. If you want God, you may have questions. You may have objections. But if you truly want God, no one who truly wants God will be without him. The question is whether you're playing games or not. Oh yeah, I want God, but he just hasn't proven himself to me. Baloney. Your mind and your heart is closed. If you truly want God, he will come to you. In the the corollary truth, Everyone who truly wants heaven won't go to hell. That's a pretty amazing thing. We've got to put a little twist on this here because the issue is not the destination but the desire. The issue is not the destination, heaven or hell. It's the desire. Do you want God or do you just want heaven? Because I'll tell you, I don't know anybody who wants to go to hell, but I don't meet a lot of people that want heaven if it means that they have to have a king. So it's not so much about the destination. The issue is not the destination, but the desire. Is God your desire? Because God is continually calling people to come to himself. It's a beautiful thing. Point number four, God is especially concerned for the hopeless. For the hopeless. (laughs) We'll see this in just a second when we move into the second half of the parable, when we get to the payment but it becomes very obvious that God, as the landowner, values people. He values people over things. He values people over things. How do we know that? Because he's very pleased to part with his money because he knows that it blesses people. And this is a very important thing for us to recognize as Americans. Okay, We, we certainly do not need to apologize for being born in the most prosperous nation ever on the face of the planet. But can we be honest here for a second? This afternoon, you could go home and you could throw away more stuff than most people around the world will ever own in their entire life. Right, do, you, do you get that? Do you, do you get the weight of that? What you throw away in your trash can once a week may be more stuff than some people have ever owned in their entire life. We have so much stuff and our stuff keeps us from sometimes doing things. Well, I don't want to have the kids ride in my van because my van is clean. What have you just done? Things over people. Well, you know, um, to do this would, I don't know, that's just too nice for like church use. I'm not going to have that at my house with my stuff. Or man, I kind of got this for myself to enjoy. And yet God always puts people over things. And we see this most clearly in the very last group of people that he hires. You know, I'm I know that this happens in Texas because I have seen it visiting my in-laws. But it's not uncommon sometimes to drive into a town and around that town square to see people who are waiting to be hired. And you pull up with a pickup truck and everybody hops in the back. And who are the first workers to get chosen? The big, strong fellas. 
the guys that have energy, that are young and healthy, and who do you not get? The grandpas and the guys with the canes and the people that can hardly walk because they just don't look productive. And so here, what you see is at five o'clock, at the very last hour, Jesus is hiring more people, not so much because they're going to get a ton done in the next hour, but because they need work. Why are you standing around here all day? Well, because no one hired us. Why did nobody hire them? Because they stink. They're the worst workers of the bunch. They're left behind because maybe they were too lazy to be there at six o'clock in the morning when workers get hired. Maybe in our context, they were too hungover from whatever they did last night, and they're still a little groggy trying to figure out what's going on with the day. But the point is, these are the rejects, the handicapped, the unskilled, the unwanted, and Jesus gives them a job because they need a job. Isn't that beautiful about God's grace? That he's not just looking for beautiful people. Because if that was the case, you needed to be smart, beautiful, handsome, whatever, alluring. I wouldn't be in, and neither would you. Because the gospel judges by a different standard than the world does. When we get to verse 8, there's a major transition. <clears throat> While it may have started in the morning with a landowner heading to the city square to hire workers, now the work is done, the men are no longer working, and they're getting paid. So now the scene transitions from going into town to going to the bank. They're ready to get their paycheck and to head into town and, I don't know, have a cow kebabs or something later that night. Getting paid, it's good. And so as we see here the conclusion of the story in verses 8 through 16, God has very important lessons, again, to teach us about himself, but also to teach us about ourselves, about himself, but also about uh, ourselves. Look at verses 8 through 16. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired at about five came, they each received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed that they would get more, but they also received a denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner, these last men put in one hour, and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day in the burning heat. And the landowner replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my business? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. In, in perhaps kind of an unprecedented move, G, uh, Jesus says that this landowner instructs the foreman to make payment to the workers. And in a uh, just crazy fashion, he decides to pay the last guys first. So you know what that means? That means if you got hired at 6 o'clock and been working in the field, you got to stand around until everybody else gets paid. You're, instead of you being the first to be paid, he's going to make you stand around while these guys who still aren't dirty and sweaty yet because they've only worked an hour are getting paid and going. But when he begins this payment process and they learn what the going wage is, like shockwaves are going through the crowd. Wow, he gave these last guys 12 times more than would have been expected. They worked an hour, and yet they get money like they worked 12 hours. This is not good management. Uh, let me just be really clear. Um, Scott, you know, whoever else here uh, hires people, this is not a go out and do likewise thing. Uh, your business will be busted broke really quick if you do this. And so again, the point of the parable is not about agriculture or management. 
But, but what we see is being communicated here are really profound truths about God and his grace, how he makes payment. And so two very compatible points of application that kind of go together. Number five, God always keeps his promises. Have you found this to be true? Well, I don't know. I've gone through some stuff. Yeah? Where'd you end up? God always keeps his promises. And I love this because in our story, at the very literal end of the day, the landowner has done exactly what he said he would do. Friend, didn't we agree on what the wage would be? And the point here is that in his distribution of the gift of salvation, God is impartial and he is just. Now, I can say this phrase, and you can finish it for me. We all believe that the ground is what at the cross? The ground is level at the cross. We think, you know, we all come to Jesus, and we don't deserve anything else. It's the great equalizer. The ground is level at the cross, and we don't really believe that when God gives grace to someone else. Well, we believe that humbly when he gives it to us. Oh, just lowly me. But then we see him give his grace to someone that we think doesn't deserve it, and we go, hey, wait, wait, wait. I've been working a whole lot longer and harder, but God is impartial, and he keeps his promises to hire whoever is willing to receive whoever comes to him. He's not going to cast them out. Point number six, God always gives more than we deserve. Always gives more than we deserve. Friend, when we talk about his grace, like the men, the first workers who complain, we are fools to appeal to God for what is right. Fools to appeal for what is right. You know what is right? Hell is right. Every single one of us. That's what we deserve. That's what is fair. Trust me, you don't want fair. And let me just make this painfully clear. If the Bible says that the highest calling in our life is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength... There is not one second of your day that God should not be the highest thing in your thoughts. If I had to ask you how many seconds you spent yesterday not consciously glorifying God, is there anybody here that would say the majority of my seconds were not spent consciously glorifying God? I'd raise my hand. You see, we we think we're good because we spent five minutes in our quiet time yesterday. Hey, God, you know, I don't know how many seconds there are in a day, but you got, you know, 300, and, what's, 300 seconds. You know, c- congratulations. You should be really proud of that, God. I give you 300 seconds of my day. But all of the rest of them. So you have multiple, multiple millions of opportunities for you to not have worship the highest being in all of the universe who is the only one worthy of our worship. You spent more time in your own self-interests, in your own selfish concerns than you ever do pursuing God. And so if you want what is right, well, congratulations, he'll give you hell. But in his grace, we don't deserve salvation, but he gives it to us and he distributes it and teaches us that he views all true disciples as equals. If any of us get in, we get in by grace. Aren't you grateful for that? How good do you have to be? Let me tell you, your five-minute quiet time ain't enough to get you in. Helping the old lady across the street once every six months, it's not enough to get you in. 
working in a Sunday school class every week for 52 weeks out of the year. It's not enough to get you in. It's grace that gets us in. And so these are all, these six things that we've talked about are all important things for us to celebrate about God. But here's the point. As we see in this parable, we don't always appreciate God's grace. We get offended when it's given to someone else. We don't rejoice with them. This will date me a little bit. One of the coolest toys in the world when I was growing up were Transformers. It's awesome. And that's what I wanted. I wanted Transformers. The problem is there was a stupid little toy called GoBots. Anybody remember GoBots? I hated GoBots. I wanted Transformers. You know what I got for Christmas? Goofy GoBots. You know what my best friend got? Optimus Prime. I mean, his name is cool. And so when I got really what is the equivalent gift, I despised my parents for not spending the extra dollar to get me, like, the name brand Transformer. I didn't want the Goofy GoBot. My best friend, oh, listen, I had to send him a letter. Are we best friends, yes or no? No! You got Transformers. And isn't it the same with us? Like, God's really gracious until he gives our friend the promotion that we've been longing for. I mean, God's been super gracious to us until, as we've been struggling with infertility, he gives a blessing to a couple that wasn't even trying. God's been gracious to us until someone else gets the thing that we want, and then God just doesn't seem really gracious at all. God, don't you know that I've probably prayed more than he has for that gift? He, he, he's not even going to appreciate it. But God, I would appreciate it. Well, you definitely demonstrate it by repudiating God for being gracious to someone else. No, you wouldn't appreciate it. And so these first workers raise a very serious objection about God's pay scale. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you have the same objection too. Because we all think that whoever works the longest and the hardest deserves the most pay. Right? Right? If you work 12 hours, you expect to have the biggest paycheck. And when you see him give 12 times more to the person who works the last hour, well then what are you going to get? You're like, I'm getting paid and this is a good thing. But in God's system of grace, he substitutes grace for ability or merit. What you do and how hard you do it, if it's not a response of love to God, is sin. Plain and simple. Because God gives grace. We don't deserve it. He doesn't give you based upon your merit or ability. So basically, these first workers, okay? And who are the workers? These are workers in his vineyard. These are believers. The workers repudiate the landowner for his grace in giving to the last workers the same thing that he's given to them. Why? Because they don't deserve it and I do. That's the complete opposite of grace. So what's their problem? Man, they're singing about amazing grace when they get that job at 6 o'clock in the morning. But what they sing about as amazing grace becomes offensive grace at 6 p.m. when other people get paid more than they think they deserve. And so now, what have they done? They've compared the intensity and duration of their work with that of the last workers, and they believe that they deserve more, and they've put themselves in a position where they not only look down on the last group of workers, but they actually look down on the landowner himself. Guys, listen, comparison is a deadly thing. It will mess you up to look at someone else's blessings and not consider what God has done for you because comparison leads to pride. And you go, well, why did he get it and I didn't? I'm better than he is. I do this and 
It's just dangerous because at that point we begin to morph, modify, degrade, and impair grace. And we use the same language, but we mean something completely different. We don't want what is fair. So here's the issue. What's the takeaway? How do we respond? Because we all acknowledge within our heart builds this. We want what we deserve, but we know that we don't want what we deserve. What do we do? Two points of application and we'll be done. Number one, pray for God to help your heart celebrate his grace. What have we seen both in this story and its concluding phrase? Its concluding phrase, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Here's the beautiful thing. The Lord lifts the last. He takes the people that are in the last place that nobody wants and he puts them at the head of the line and they get paid generously and they get exalted in front of their friends. And he does this not because there's anything in them that are good. These are probably the worst workers. They're not fruitful. They're not productive. They're not good. But God is good. And we have to be able to recognize this. This is why the Bible says we rejoice with those who rejoice. And we weep with those who reap. We rejoice because God is good. And unless we ask him in our hearts to help us celebrate this, we will always default into the comparison game. We can't do that. Number two, ask God to help you practice humility. Those words are chosen intentionally. Because in 1 John, uh, John the Apostle says, no one who practices sin is born of God or knows God. He says, if you are a Christian and you are practicing sin to get more proficient and better and more efficient at it, you're not a believer. If you sin, there should be conviction and you should want to eradicate that from your life like a cancer from your body. We don't practice sin. On the contrary, we practice righteousness. Now, the righteousness that we practice is broken, busted, messed up, and no good. But we practice righteousness because God has put his spirit in us to enable us to do good. So when we say practice humility, you practice to get better. Anybody here need to practice humility? Who's got humility down? See, you can't raise your hand at that. I saw that. You can't raise your hand at that, can you? Because then you're not humble. Every single one of us needs to practice humility. And listen, here's what happens when you practice humility. If you practice humility, now you want to be the person who starts work early and stays over late, not because you want a reward, but because you love the landowner. That's what humility does. It takes this exact same situation, turns it on his head, and they're like, you know what? Hey, why don't you pay those guys at five first? Because there's still some work to do. I'll be glad to do whatever needs to be done. I'll pick up the tools. You take care of them first. Why? Because you're humble. Not because you think you're going to get something more out of it, but because you love the work because you love the master. And yet we've become so mercenary that we serve God because we think we're going to get something out of it. We don't love the master. We love what the master gives. And we think about grace, but we don't truly appreciate it. The landowner ends with two questions. Did you see him at the very end? Is verse um, 15. One is a theological question dealing with who God is. One is an anthropological question dealing with man's condition. Here's the theological question. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my business? Does God need to ask your permission for anything? Nope. Can he give his grace to whom he wants to give his grace to? Yep. 
Now we know how he's going to give his grace. He's going to give his grace to humbled sinners who know their need of him. He's not going to give it to someone who doesn't want it. God is sovereign. And the question that it's asking these first workers who are complaining is, hey, are you okay with this? Can't I do what I want with my business? Aren't I in charge of everything? Are you okay with this? You know, it's mind-blowing to think about that somebody like a, um, Adolf Hitler, Muammar Gaddafi, Osama bin Laden, if they truly repented before they died, God would give them the same grace that he gave you. He did it to the thief on the cross. And the thief on the cross didn't, didn't ever go to Sabbath school. Never gave a tithe. Never changed diapers in the nursery. Never went on a short-term mission trip. Never attended church. God gave grace to a thief on the cross. He's sovereign. Can you deal with that? Number two, the anthropological question, dealing with man's sinfulness. Are you jealous because I'm generous? I'd like to think that I'm not. But what happens when God is gracious to someone that you think doesn't deserve it? What's your scale for determining whether they deserve it or not? You see, as we develop the right kind of humility, here's what's great. We stop worrying about what everyone else gets. Because we know if we're in and if they're in, we have gotten there by receiving what none of us deserve. So you know what? Great. God has blessed Quinn. He's blessed me too. And he doesn't deserve it and neither do I. Because God's awesome. He's good. And when I'm humble, I'm not worried about what he's doing. I can just celebrate the marvelousness of his grace and mercy. He says that the last will be first. We've seen that. They're humble. They're the rejects, and God exalts them. But he says that the first will be last. And the thing that's so counterintuitive about this is these are the big, strong guys. And these are the guys that you want on your team because they work hard, and they're there all day. But they have a bloated self-consciousness and a self-centeredness that is not focused on the master at all. Friend, I don't want to be last because I grumble at what God in his grace gives to others. And I trust that you don't want to either. So as we celebrate grace and practice humility, let's recognize the amazing grace that we don't deserve that we've already received. Pray with me, please. God, I pray that you help us by your spirit to not turn your grace into a wage. Help us not to turn it into a benefit. Help us not to turn it into something that we deserve because we don't. And God, if we have this kind of transactional attitude, God, today, our hearts have been exposed for the idolatry that they are, that we think we deserve something more, and that means that we truly don't understand grace at all. So God, I I pray for those who are here that realize that they have been negotiating with God, that you will break through their mind, break through their heart, break through their will, and help them to understand that their only hope is the grace of God in Christ. God, even for those of us that are the first hour workers, help us not to repudiate your grace by thinking we deserve more than others. Work in us such a work of your spirit 
that you give us hearts that rejoice at your work in the world and that are content, even more so than that, that we glory in practicing a humility that makes much of our master and not much of ourselves. We don't deserve your grace, but because of who you are, you give it. God, for that, we are grateful. I pray today that you'll allow us to speak words of grace to each other. And the ministry that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ will not be something that ends with this song, but something that we extend and apply to each other. That if there are those that need to have conversations about what it means to be in a right relationship with you, to repent, to follow God, that today, that they'll come uh, forward to speak with myself or one of our staff, to speak with people that are sitting around them, and that we can truly have the ministry, the priesthood of believers that you died to give to us. It's a precious gift. But God, help us today to not walk away when our hearts are provoked. In Jesus' name we pray.